Well, our scripture text tonight comes from Judges chapter 3. Joseph was kind to me. He gave me only one chapter. He took two last week, so thank you, Joseph. Um, one chapter of Judges. There's a lot in this chapter. Uh, we're going to start by uh, reading it together, and as is our custom uh, in the evening service, we'll say, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and respond with thanks be to God. So hear now the word of the Lord. Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Labo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathiah, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathiah eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathiah, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathiah. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Abel, the son of Gerah, the Benjamin, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it 
into his belly. And the hilts also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came up. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited there till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. They who escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our great, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, there's much in here that uh, is hard to understand. There's much in here that uh, perhaps offends our modern sensibilities. Lord, would you help us now to see your grace, your mercy upon your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not going to ignore the rest of you, but I only see a few school-aged children. And I'm going to start with a question for you. Do you like tests? Raise your hand if you like tests. Okay, let's take a broader poll now. This week, one out of one, two, one out of six. Let's take a broader poll. Think back. Some of you are thinking back, you know, a few years. Some of you are thinking back many years. Did you like tests? Raise your hand if you liked tests. You liked tests. Okay, so not many of you. There were probably some aspects of tests in school growing up that you just did not appreciate. Did any of you get really anxious? Did you get really nervous? Did you get really upset? Maybe you got sick to your stomach. And then you might have even forgotten things that you knew you knew because you're so anxious. So the process itself can be a little painful, I admit. But let's think about education just for a moment. Were it not for those tests? What would you have learned? You still would learn a lot, right? Yes. But when you have a test, the process of studying for the test and taking the test, have you ever had like the epiphany on the test? Now I get it, right? And then afterwards, kind of the review of the 
tests, right? Sometimes that's what really helps us understand something. That's what makes the lasting impact. So tests, for better or for worse, we're all intimately familiar with. I think if we're honest, we can at least say they've done some good in our academic lives. Now, I'm a teacher. I'm giving my first test this Friday. I think Theo's home studying for it already. No, I don't think he is. Um, uh, so tests are coming up as we start this school year. Well, our text today talks about tests and the testing of Israel. And the text starts off and it says very clearly that God left nations, in verses 1 through 6, to test Israel. It says four in particular. And I think what's happening there is a picture is being painted, a general picture, to say that there were nations all over Israel that would test them because one of these predominantly was in the, and this is going to be really hard to do, the northwest. Did I get that right? One in the northeast, one kind of known for being in the southwest, and one for the southeast, right? So they're painting this picture uh, in verse four. Um, uh, uh, sorry, verse 3, uh, and as you go on a little bit later, I think it's verse 5, and actually lists six different nations. But it's painting a picture that there are nations all in the midst of Israel right, that will test them. And of course, this is by no means the first test that we see of God's people. Although Genesis 2 doesn't use that language, and 2 and 3, it would seem reasonable to say that Adam and Eve were tested to not eat from one tree and to eat from another. Since perhaps Noah was tested, quite a test of faith, a hundred-year test of faith, as everyone around him is ridiculing him, what are you doing building a giant boat? There's no rain in this place. There's no water around here. This doesn't make any sense. But the specific language of text, if it's not clear before Genesis 22, comes into uh, clear fashion with Abraham. And you'll see that in your additional scriptures. Sorry for the confusion. The additional scriptures in the bulletin, not the ones on the handout here. There's some on each. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Of course, this is the infamous test. Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain together. It's a test. Abraham, do you love me more than you love your only son? Son, promise. Uh, well, and so testing we're familiar with up until the time of Judges, but here we have testing again. For what purpose? Well, verse 2 tells us one thing uh, it tells us that they might know war. Which is a little obscure. I can tell you all, having known war as someone who used to be in the military and who has gone to war, overall, I'd probably be better off if I hadn't known war. But I wasn't fighting the kind of war that they were fighting. You see, they were fighting the kind of war where one of the main lessons for them to learn was that God fights for them. This generation didn't know that. They hadn't experienced that. So one is to uh, know war, know uh, that God fights for them. Uh, secondly, it's to know, and we're in verse 4 here, whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. Well, what commandments are they talking about here? Well, I think a lot of this is, is, if not a pretty clear reference to Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first five verses. Everything we see unfold 
in the book of Judges goes against what was in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. That's in your additional scriptures here. I'll read that for you briefly. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. He had commanded their fathers, and now he is testing them. Would they obey the commandments of the Lord? Would they love him more than they loved the world and the peoples around them. And they seem to be quite infatuated with the Canaanites and this highly civilized society compared to them with all of these developments and this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey and all of their new and strange gods and all the ways you worship those gods. Would they love the one living and true God more than all of those other well, it doesn't take long to see how Israel does uh, in these texts. We don't need to get into the specifics. Um, verse 5 tells us, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It's not good. Secondly, verse 6, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, not good. And they serve their gods. Really not good. And this is a summary statement of what we're about to see unfold through all of these various tests. It really frames all that follows. So how did Israel do in these specific subsequent tests? Well, we have three in our text today. The first test, Othniel. Well, Verse 7 really continues the theme of verse 5 and 6, when it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot God. They served Baal, Asherah. Now verse 8 tells us the Lord's response, which was prophesied in Deuteronomy. It's anger. He sells them into the hand of Cushan Arishathayim, uh, which means double wickedness. And there's definitely a play on words going here. I won't get off into that, but um, it's from the land of Mesopotamia, which is a land between two rivers. So double wickedness, this king, double rivers. Right? Um, uh, you can ask me afterwards about that, what potentially is going on there. Uh, verse 9, the people cry out. Uh, uh, verse 9, also, the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge, a military leader. It's kind of the same thing throughout the book of Judges. Uh, and this time, it's Othniel, and he achieves military victory. And then in verse 11, the land has rest, this time 40 years. And this is the pattern we see throughout this book. It's really a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. It starts with apostasy, 
rejecting the one true living God for the gods of the nations around them. Uh, secondly, then being handed over. God giving them over to their enemies. You don't want to serve me, serve them. See how well that goes. Uh, thirdly, they cry out. They come to a point where it gets so bad in their suffering that they cry out to him. Uh, fourthly, God raises up a judge, a military leader to fight for them, to defeat their enemies. And then lastly, there's rest. And the cycle begins again, and it just keeps happening. And a good picture of it would be, it's, 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 if you could picture like a bunch of balls on an incline, just kind of like rolling downhill and plowing over each other, it's just getting worse and worse and worse as the book goes on. We'll have about a dozen weeks to talk about that. So, uh, the cycle starts up again in verse 12, and this time it's with a man named Ehud. Right? The people in verse 12 again do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. This time they're given over to Eglon, king of Moab, we see in verse 12. And he defeats Israel and he captures the city of Palms, Jericho. People then cry out when things get really bad. They cry out. Israel uh, serves uh, Eglon for 18 years. At the end of that, they cry out, the Lord raises up Ehud in verse 15. And this is where the story gets both very interesting as well as very graphic, if you were paying attention uh, when we read it. Uh, so after Ehud goes in to pay tribute, they're paying money to this king, uh, he's on his way out and he stops and he turns and he comes back. And he says, I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. What he actually had, it is a word. But put an S in front of that. He had a word with a sword. He was left-handed, and he had hidden a sword, a cubit long, 15, 18 inches, on his right thigh. Okay, And most people were right-handed back then, just as today. So when the guards checked him, they probably checked all the other places. They didn't think anyone would keep a sword over there, because most people aren't left-handed. So he comes into the king and tells him he has a message, and he sticks it in there, right? He thrusts it into Jabba the Hutt. Well, not exactly. But he thrusts it into him nonetheless, and this saves Princess Leia from later having to strangle him with a chain. No, right? He's in there by himself. No one else is there. He escapes, and now time is going on, and the servants are like, Okay, remember the text told us he was probably relieving himself. Like, how long could it take to go to the bathroom? This is getting really embarrassing. Who has, someone has to go in and check on him. And so they do, and he's dead. Right? And then the land has rest this time for 80 years. And oh, by the way, they also chased down a bunch of Moabites and killed them and had a great victory. Okay, so they had rest for a long period of time. Then the cycle starts again with Shamgar. He gets a whole one verse. One verse. So we don't necessarily see all these five requisite parts. And on the heels of the story with Ehud and Eglon, we might be grateful for just one verse. Like we don't, maybe we don't want any more of all those details. So this is all we get. There's no mention of evil, kind of the first part of the cycle. But we identify that the Philistines have become the enemy, the oppressor. Uh, they've subjugated God's people somehow. There's no mention of God's people crying out, but I think we can assume that that took place as well. Um, and, and then we see Shamgar, son of Eneth, saving Israel. And most commentators don't think 
this person was even in Israel. So things are not going all that well. Yet again, there's, there's no specific mention of rest, but I think it's implied. So we have three specific tests, right? And the only thing that God's people really have going for them uh, is that when things got really, 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 really bad. Did I say it enough times? Then they cried out. That, that's about it. We're going to see a lot more of these in the book of Judges, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit now. Because uh, we see God testing his people up until the book of Judges, and we see God testing his people well beyond the book of Judges. We see it in the Psalms. They speak of God testing his people, our call to worship today. Psalm 66 mentions this. Uh, Proverbs speak of testing God's people. In these additional scriptures, we read, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And prophets, we see God testing his people, most notably, I think, through Jeremiah uh, and uh, Zechariah, if you're looking for the specific language of testing. So we see it in the law, we see it in the Psalms or the wisdom literature, we see it in the prophets. It's a theme throughout scripture. And when Jesus comes, in the Gospels. He will do some testing as well, but unfortunately, we actually see the opposite more often. We see people, even God's people, even the most religious people of the day, trying to put him to the test. Yet the story continues after Christ, his apostles write the epistles, and we can see uh, easily see across nearly all the New Testament writers. We can see from the Apostle Paul, multiple places, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We can see from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 4. We can see in Hebrews chapter 11, also in your additional scriptures, a commentary on Abraham uh, and the testing that took place there. We can see it in James chapter 1. We can see it in Revelation chapter 2. Perhaps the clearest place, the simplest place, the one I want to read you is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But just as we, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. God tests our hearts. What kind of tests and trials are we talking about here? Well, you tell me, really. What's the one you're going through right now? I mean, they can take all kinds of forms. There are limitless possibilities. It could be sickness, pandemic, we're all going through that one. Uh, it, it could be a conflict, perhaps some type of unresolved interpersonal conflict. It could be um, some kind of loss. We lose lots of things in this life, whether death, loved one, job, opportunities, friends. We lose all kinds of things. It could be a disappointment. Um, it could be, as we read in Psalm 66, you know, something that maybe it's hard to put words to, uh, a, a crushing burden, or we feel like we're going through the fire. These tests come in all those forms and many more. But what is God ultimately testing our hearts for? Why does he test our hearts? You know, I test my students so I know what they know. God clearly can't be testing us so that he knows, right? because he already knows. So he's not testing us for him, 
He's testing us for us. See, God is testing our hearts, I submit to you today, to teach us to love him more than we love anything else. More than anything this world could ever give us, more than anything anyone could ever do for us, God tests us so that we might know him more. And love him more. You see, Israel cried out to God in today's text, and they were miserable. And that's a, a bit of a start, I guess. But more than crying out to God, God is trying to teach us to cry out for Him. Not to Him for something that we need or want, but for Him to have more of Him. Israel, it seems, was often content to cry out to God and just get a, a bit of victory and peace. They got a little bit of it through Othniel for a while, a little bit of it through Ehud, a little bit of it through Shandor. But do you really want a left-handed savior from the tribe of Benjamin to give you peace for just a little bit of time? Will you be satisfied with that? How long could that possibly last? Or would you rather have? Are you really seeking the lion from the tribe of Judah to give you the peace that passes all understanding? both now and forevermore, the one who is seated at the right hand of God. How could some temporary peace satisfy your weary soul or really fix the problem that you're going through? But we need more than anything else. Is God Himself? Folks, we need God. <clears throat> we need Jesus. And that's exactly who God is putting before us <clears throat> each and every time He tests our hearts. Will we love God? Son and Holy Spirit, the one who was willing to die for us more than we love ourselves, more than anything this world has to offer, more than anything we are going through, hard as it may be. We can't be satisfied with getting rescued from time to time, being saved from just some earthly peril and yet not getting God himself. Can we let the test of our lives show us how much we need Jesus? And then can we run to Christ? He's our only comfort in life and death.